This is the 10,000 Depositions Later podcast, episode 89. I'm Jim Garrity. Today's episode, Lessons from the Front Lines, an appellate court's ominous comment to litigants fighting over a transcript's accuracy. Hey there, everybody. I hope you're having a great week and that everything has gone your way so far. As you know, our Lessons from the Frontline episodes are based on brand new deposition-related court rulings from around the country. Today's episode focuses on a federal appellate opinion issued just three days ago, April 18, 2022. Now, before I get into the opinion, I do like to point out that these episodes are based on rulings that are, in fact, brand new. Almost always, the case in which the ruling was issued is still pending. What's the significance of that? Well, it means that the ruling may be reversed, amended, withdrawn, or otherwise subject to challenge. So that's the caveat. Now, as we roll through this episode, we should ask ourselves, how far would this dispute have gone if all the participants had, as you have, listened to episode seven of this podcast, in which I advocated and have always advocated here and elsewhere that you consider audio recording your depositions separate and apart from the stenographic record. This dispute over the accuracy of the deposition transcript reached all the way to a federal appellate court, one notch below the highest court in the land. And the question to ask is this, would any of this have been necessary if either the plaintiff or the defense had audio recorded the deposition? Let's get started. The seven-page ruling from the U.S. Court of Appeals for the 11th Circuit in the case Reed versus Pediatric Services of America, Inc., tells us that the plaintiff, proceeding pro se, and the defendant, represented by counsel, sharply disagreed about the accuracy of the stenographic transcript of the plaintiff's deposition. This disagreement apparently surfaced about two weeks before the defendant moved for summary judgment. The plaintiff had apparently just gotten a copy of her deposition from the court reporter's office, and she claimed in a court filing that the deposition transcript as prepared repeatedly misquoted her and was also inaccurate in other critical respects. So the unrepresented plaintiff filed a motion saying, I'd like to have the recordings reviewed by this court or the entire deposition deemed inadmissible due to numerous inaccuracies and because it's inconsistent with the actual recordings. Now with her motion, she also filed a copy of the transcript but added numerous handwritten annotations in the right-hand margins, challenging the accuracy of various portions of the record. The plaintiff apparently didn't have the reporter's audio to compare the transcript against for the court, but nonetheless very aggressively said the transcript is simply wrong in critical ways. Uh, To give you a sense for how persistent this plaintiff was, she apparently also filed a formal complaint against the court reporter with what she called the Board of Court Reporting slash Judicial Council of Georgia. Defense counsel, for its part, in its filed opposition papers, informed the court that it had contacted the court reporting agency that handled the deposition and had given the agency explicit instructions to listen to the audio recording and to compare it to the testimony as captured in the transcript. Smart move. But that also reflects that the defense here as well apparently did not have its own copy of the audio uh, by which to review the transcript 
or to provide to the court. So the court reporting agency following the defense request confirmed in a declaration it filed with the court that the audio indeed perfectly matched the stenographic transcript provided to the parties. Not long thereafter, the federal magistrate uh, judge assigned to the case made short work of the plaintiff's motion, saying in a three-page ruling that the court found no credence to the plaintiff's assertions and declined to find the transcript of her deposition inadmissible due to inaccuracies. So, it seemed, the issue was dead on arrival. Footnote. It is of mild interest to me that the magistrate also did not ask either side or the court reporting agency to produce the audio or to have it transcribed by some other agency at the plaintiff's expense for comparison purposes. The court instead accepted the affidavit of the court reporting agency's representative, which did not recount the testimony word for word. And on the basis of that affidavit from the agency, denied the motion. Again, at this point, it appears neither side nor the court had the audio, which would obviously be dispositive. All right, fast forward two months. The district judge grants summary judgment and almost in passing, but still addressing it in a paragraph within the order dismissing the case, said that to the extent the plaintiff had argued that her deposition transcript was somehow altered, the magistrate judge had already addressed this and rejected it. Footnote again, while the district judge addressed this in its ruling on the dispositive motion where the accuracy of the transcript was still, apparently, clearly at issue, it, like everyone before it, did not ask either party to produce or obtain the audio file. Now, to be sure, it would have been unusual for the court to make such a request, given that one might be able to conclude that there really wasn't a serious challenge to the accuracy of the transcript, the plaintiff hadn't submitted an errata sheet, and as best I can surmise from the filings, either did not ask for a copy of the audio or was not successful in making such an attempt, if any. Uh, regardless, it's game over for the lawsuit at that point, but not for the appeal. Following entry of summary judgment, the plaintiff, again without counsel, appeals to the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals, which as you know, sits in Atlanta and oversees uh, federal cases arising in Florida Georgia, and Alabama. In her initial brief on appeal, she once again makes the accuracy of her deposition transcript a focal point of her arguments. In fact, issue number one in her brief reads as follows, quote, whether the district court erred in denying plaintiff's motion to dismiss deposition when plaintiff made an adequate offer of proof of misconduct, close quote. So what does the appeals court do? Well, for its part, it seemed prepared to shoot down the entirety of the plaintiff's self-propelled case, but for the aggressive assertions that that transcript was not an accurate account of her testimony. But the vibe I got from the court's opinion is that it was agitated, to say the least, about the accusations seemingly unfounded that the court reporter's work was just a sham. So the 11th Circuit takes the unusual step of vacating the lower court's order, granting summary judgment, and remanding the case for determination of the accuracy of the parts of the plaintiff's deposition transcript that the plaintiff had annotated as inaccurate. Court says, given all the circumstances of this case, including the fact that the transcript of the plaintiff's deposition was a crucial part of the record, 
the case ought to be sent back. The 11th Circuit further instructed the trial judge to make the audio tape from the plaintiff's deposition available to the parties. Doesn't say how the trial judge is going to do that since it didn't have that in the first instance, but says make it available. It also directed the plaintiff and counsel for defendant to listen to the audio recording of the plaintiff's deposition and reach agreement, if they can, about whether the parts of the transcript that the plaintiff marked as inaccurate are in fact inaccurate. The 11th Circuit also authorized the trial judge to conduct whatever other proceedings the judge deemed appropriate, including modifying the summary judgment order and reinstating or altering the final judgment based on any new information about the accuracy of the transcript. Then the appeals court, wrapping up the opinion, said the following, quote, After the district court concludes the proceedings we have directed, we leave to its determination whether to sanction any party and whether to refer anyone in this case, party or otherwise, to the U.S. Attorney's Office for an investigation into whether any crime, including perjury, has been committed, end quote. All right. What's the takeaway here? Well, the first takeaway is really a rhetorical question, which is, what's really going on here? Is this perhaps just a message by a federal appellate court to trial judges about how to deal with pro se plaintiffs or others that are misstating the record? Kind of seems like it, doesn't it? The defense moved very quickly here and forthrightly to ask the court reporter to attest to the accuracy of the transcript for better or worse and provide the trial judge with a sworn statement from the reporting agency that the transcript was absolutely accurate or not. So why would a federal appeals court take the time to vacate a summary judgment ruling where there really appears to have been no genuine issue about the accuracy of the transcript, send it back to the trial judge, have the plaintiff and lawyers for the defendant go through it again, and then report back to the trial judge who was then instructed to return the case to the appeals court? So maybe the 11th Circuit was simply setting a precedent for district judges on what to do when confronted with these sorts of accusations by a party that appear to be completely unfounded. While the pro se plaintiff in this case was very strident and appeared fairly articulate and skilled in her filings, it just seems inconceivable, doesn't it, that the federal appellate court had a serious question about it? Maybe, given the plaintiff's aggressive focus on the inaccuracy of the transcript, Perhaps the appeals court was upset that the audio file had not been obtained and made a part of the record by anyone. Instead, the record only contained an affidavit from the reporting agency, which of course does not, in an absolute sense, uh, create a record that allows comparison of the audio file itself to the transcript. It did not appear to me from the record, at least as best I could tell, and maybe I'm wrong, that either side had ever requested the audio from the court reporter, subpoenaed it, or asked the trial judge to direct the agency to produce the audio file to the extent the court had the power to do on its own, which I'm certain it did. So what does all of this mean for you as a litigator? Well, I've been advocating for years, as you know, that you independently audio record your depositions where feasible. I covered that in episode seven of this podcast and in virtually all of my practice guides on deposition strategies and tactics. Audio recording is allowed under the federal rules without court approval or approval of opposing counsel 
under Rule 30B3A and B. In most state courts, independently audio recording a deposition is generally not automatically allowed, but you can always ask the court under the general rules of discovery to do so. You can also ask the court reporter in advance to provide a copy of the audio along with the stenographic transcript. Some reporters will do this. In fact, I focused on one such reporting agency that provides the audio and a word index to the audio file in episode 87. Now, some traditional reporters will not provide the audio, but all really should. And that's something you can easily request in advance of the deposition, even offering some modest additional fee uh, for the audio file. Having a copy of the audio from your depositions is the very best way to allow your deponents to review the transcript for absolute accuracy. If as litigators, we all prioritized the audio file as we do the stenographic version, disputes like this would disappear instantly. And we have to ask ourselves, why didn't the reporting agency here immediately provide a copy of the audio file to both the plaintiff and defendant once it became aware there was a dispute or even offer uh, independently a copy of the audio file to the court? Why just an affidavit? If it had offered up that audio file, this appeal would have been affirmed and no one would be spending another day on this case. As I've uh, told you in the past, I include language in every deposition notice informing opposing counsels that I plan to independently audio record every deposition. And my language reads as follows, quote, this slash these depositions will be taken by oral examination before an officer duly authorized by law to take depositions and are being taken for the purposes of discovery, for use at trial, or both, or for such other purposes as are permitted under the applicable and governing rules. You are hereby notified that plaintiff's counsel or defendant's counsel will independently audio record the depositions pursuant to Federal Rule 30, separate and apart from the recording created by the reporter. These depositions will continue from day to day until completed. So the standard language with that one sentence thrown in there, putting the opposing side on notice that I will be independently recording the deposition. That's all Federal Rule 30 requires you to do. So that's it. So my advice to you, where permitted and when you can, you should independently audio record your depositions. First, it will save you countless hours that would otherwise be spent fighting over the accuracy of the transcript. This case went to a federal appellate court and will be going back there after additional hours of labor spent fighting over the transcript uh, before the trial judge because no one had the audio. Second, it will vastly improve the quality of your witness's review of the rough draft of the transcript and completion of an errata sheet. Third, it can benefit you in other ways as well. One example, you can have the audio file transcribed by an AI-based service like Rev.com, R-E-V.com. I do that frequently with audio recorded interviews of witnesses. A two-hour transcript uh, run through Rev.com runs about $150. Shorter interviews, much less. So you can also save a lot of money by having deposition testimony informally transcribed for internal use only, from which you can then make the decision whether you will eventually need to order the formal transcript. And let me share this final thought. The stenographic transcript is the offspring of the audio. 
The stenographic version aspires to be just like its mom or dad, but just like with real children, it's rarely a mirror image of its parent. The tape recorder is always listening and it has a perfect memory. The stenographic transcript works very hard to be just like mom or dad, but it isn't. If you've ever had a bad court reporter, then you know just how much the transcript can vary from what was actually said. And even with the very best reporters, they're going to miss something here and there. When my office goes through transcripts with the audio, it is a certainty that there will be something we need to change. It might not always be critical or dispositive, but there are always some inaccuracies. Now for audio recording our depositions, we use the handheld Zoom H5, a four channel digital recorder. No connection as far as I know to the uh, Zoom video conferencing software. You can buy the Zoom H5 for around $250 on Amazon, and it does have some specialized features, but you could honestly grab a generic digital recorder at a corner store for 25 bucks, and for the most part, it's going to do the same thing. Now, if you've never done this before, uh, independently audio taped one of your depositions, I can appreciate that some of you might feel a little squeamish, a little hesitant, walking into a deposition room and dropping the recorder on the table in front of opposing lawyers and witnesses. And frankly, lawyers that have never seen a lawyer independently audio record as well may also be surprised and wonder what's going on. But again, if you're in federal court and have properly noticed the deposition, as I suggested above, there's no issue. And if you're in state court and your deposition rules don't explicitly authorize independent audio recording, file a motion with the court. There are plenty of great arguments for doing so. Don't be shy. This dispute very nearly reached the front steps of the highest court in the land all over the audio recording of the deposition. It's just something that can be easily avoided. All right, that's it for today's episode. As always, let me know if you have any questions. You can reach us at depositionpodcast at jimgarritylaw.com. And as you have heard me say many times, we would sure love it if you would take a moment to add a five-star rating to the podcast wherever you download these episodes. That should take you no more than 10 to 20 seconds to do, but it makes all the difference in the world for us and the production team. Again, have a great week. We'll talk to you soon.